0: From Michigan Radio, this is the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside. I am Zoe Clark. Michigan lawmakers were back in Lansing this week, and they spent what's likely their final day voting before November. They were busy. And former President Donald Trump comes to the state tomorrow. He is set for an evening rally in Macomb County. We will dig into all of this news and much, much more on an It's Just Politics stateside special today. We are spending the entire hour wrapping up the week's political stories in Michigan. But first, absentee ballots are being sent out this week. And joining us now is Justin Roebuck. He is the Ottawa County Clerk. Welcome, Justin. Justin.
1: Thanks, Zoe. It's great to be with you.
0: Um, And we have a few listener questions as well that we're going to answer. But first, just tell us, just this week the legislature met. They approved a huge sum of money in a supplemental budget bill. We are going to talk about that with our reporter roundtable later in the hour. But I want to talk about the legislation that they passed that will allow the pre-processing of absentee ballots. So this sounds super technical, but it's really important when we're talking about the time that it will actually take for elections folks to count ballots. Explain exactly what this is.
1: Sure. Yeah, so, you know, the term pre processing basically is referring to the initial processing steps that the absentee counting board is taking on election day, typically uh, in the absentee counting precincts where. They are verifying a couple of things. They're looking at every ballot envelope. They're checking the voter's name on that envelope, making sure that they're checking that voter's name off of an absentee voter list. They're identifying the ballot number on the envelope, and then they're opening the ballot to ensure that the ballot number, the numbered stub on the ballot, matches what's on the envelope. So there's a bunch of security checks that go into that, just making sure and verifying that that ballot actually is from that voter. Signature verification is also a part of that. That typically is already happening at the clerk's office in real time when the ballot comes back. But the absentee counting board also has those physical applications of the voters on hand. If they have any questions, they can check that. So, all of that stuff is what we consider the pre processing phase. And realistically, you know, I think that represents probably 40, 50% of the workflow of actually counting the ballots.
0: Some are arguing, though, um, that two days is not enough and that we are likely to still see delays in election results come November.
1: You know, when you look at other states that have, um, you know, accessible absentee voting laws, what you see commonly is that there is a variation of the amount of time we're able to actually process, tabulate absentee ballots. Some states, um, it's a couple of weeks. Some states, it's a week. Some states, it's a month. So, I think when you look at two days realistically, that is certainly less time than other states have to process absentee ballots. Uh, You know, I think a positive way of looking at the two day um, process is that it's more than what we've had before.
0: Okay, well, um, let's see, Justin, are you ready to play a little game of ask the clerk? Absolutely. Okay, so we got some listener emails and tweets and even had a question at our issues and ale event this past week. So let's dig in. And this is an easy one. First, let's start with Tim. And Tim is wondering, when is he actually going to receive his ballot? So he already applied, right, for an absentee ballot. Um, I can only assume it's going to take a few days right, for him to get it.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So yes, so the the ballot deadlines, we have a couple of ballot deadlines that we're required to follow. The first ballot deadline comes 45 days prior to the election, which was actually last Saturday. And that deadline is for military and overseas voters who have applied for their ballots already. Um, That's the date that local clerks have to send those ballots by. The next deadline is actually, was yesterday. Thursday, the 29th of September, and that's the 40 day window before the election. So any voter who has applied for a ballot previously already, your applications already been sent in, the clerk has that deadline as the deadline to meet to actually send you that ballot. And that's a really fast turnaround when you look at the amount of time. So most jurisdictions had ballots delivered um, pretty much through the week last week. And some even had ballots delivered as late as as early this week. And so, uh, you know, our local jurisdiction clerks are working very hard to make sure to get those ballots in the envelopes, get them properly, um, you know, identified to the voter, obviously, and then put them in the mail. So I would suspect in the next couple of days, you may even see your ballot on Saturday, Monday, Tuesday of next week, but it'll be there soon.
0: Okay. We have a question from Mosey via Twitter, and they say, I'm closing on a new house next week. I assume I should just shred the absentee ballot that they've gotten, update my address, and request a new one. And they go on to ask, what steps should I take to reduce the likelihood of someone thinking that they're trying to vote twice or some shenanigans, they ask?
1: <laughs> well, that's a great question. OK, that that is something that we can... You know, thankfully, because we have same-day registration in the state of Michigan, or early registration too, up in the, it used to be, you had 30 days prior to an election to register to vote. Now you can register up until the day of election. And same-day registration also means same-day changing of address, right? So voters can actually go in, it doesn't have to be on election day, it can be any time leading up to the election. Go into your local clerk's office Change that address um, and essentially receive and vote a ballot at your new address. However, a little bit of a distinction there too. If your ID currently says the address where you are living, um, you have an opportunity to, to cast one last ballot essentially in your in your old location. So it's not a concern. If the voter wants to say, I'm going to vote this one last time, as long as it's 60 days, and we are in that window right now, 60 days leading to the election. So they really have a choice. They can update their ID, go into their local clerk's office, change their address, and essentially what they would be doing is spoiling that absentee ballot if it's already been issued in the old address, and then voting a new ballot. Um, or they can also vote one last time in their whole precinct. If that makes sense.
0: It totally does. Awesome, Justin. Okay. And a final question. Um, I'm actually asking on behalf of one of our awesome listeners who was in Kalamazoo this week for our It's Just Politics Issues and Ale. So they applied for an absentee ballot, but then they realized they want to actually vote in person on November 8th. Maybe they really want to get that, you know, I voted sticker. Um, what should they do with their absentee ballot once it comes?
1: That is another great question. And that's definitely one that we've gotten quite a bit from voters over the past couple of years too, because absentee voting has expanded and particularly in the pandemic, right? People would apply for absentee ballots and they, you know, weren't sure what was exactly what it was going to look like in the precincts. So the best way to handle that, if you want to vote on election day, hang on to that absentee ballot and return that ballot in the precinct. So you would actually what we call surrender the ballot. You don't vote that ballot in the precinct, but you would actually turn it over and surrender it to the um, election officials, the election workers in the precinct. And then they can go in and issue you a regular ballot and you can vote right there in the precinct. That's probably the simplest way of doing it. However, if you happen to have lost your ballot, uh, you know, say the ballot never came in the mail or something happened to the ballot was lost or destroyed, you also have the option of going to the precinct. You have to sign a document that basically attests to that fact. And you can also be issued a ballot that way.
0: Okay, Justin, thank you for our first edition of Ask the Clerk. I think there are going to be a few more before November. Um, finally, in the last few minutes that we have, I want to talk about the news out of Kent County this week. That's where a West Michigan man has been charged with two felonies for allegedly accessing an electronic poll book used in the Michigan primary election last month. Lisa Posthumus Lyons, she's the clerk in Kent County, she said the man was a township election worker, and it's alleged that he inserted a personal USB drive into the computer. Now, Lyons says that this could, quote, not have affected the outcome of the election. I know that you likely can't talk about this because it's a legal matter, but can you just, I guess, tell me how you felt after hearing about this happening?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think what, um, you know, what my colleague Lisa Lyons said in that statement is so true. The electronic poll book doesn't affect the outcome of the election. So you think of the poll book as really the registration list. That poll book contains the list of every voter in the precinct and then every voter in that precinct who has come in to vote. And it's very important in the process. It's important as a check and a balance but it is completely removed from the vote tabulation. So it's not connected to the internet. It's not connected to the tabulator. And there's no way for the poll book to interfere with the actual vote counting and the tabulator. But it obviously is an important piece of the whole process. It's important because it contains um, you know, private voter data. And so from that aspect, obviously it is, it's concerning and alarming. And I think I would say, um, You know, my feeling on it is while I'm frustrated sometimes that, you know, that we have folks out there who could potentially, um, you know, want for whatever reason to cause harm to the process, I am also encouraged by the fact that, you know, this was being handled in such a great way. When you think about it, in the precinct, this was identified. You know, we have bipartisan teams in our precincts, uh, folks who care about the process deeply. There's always eyes on the precinct. You know, no election worker is ever in the precinct by themselves at any one given time. And this was identified and caught and brought to law enforcement and is being effectively handled. And I think it sends a message both to our voters that our system is secure and that we do care about these things and watch them. And it sends a message to potential bad actors as well to say that we are watching, we are noticing. And we're a a country in a system of laws, and election officials operate on a system of laws, and bad actors will be caught.
0: Justin Roebuck, you are the Ottawa County Clerk, and we're just always so grateful for your time. Thanks so much.
1: really appreciate you having me. It's been great.
0: So let's turn now to our politics roundtable as we dig into the week that was in Michigan politics. Joining us is Zach Gorchow. He is executive editor and publisher of Gongware News Service. Hey, Zach. Hey Zoe. And we also have Clara Hendrickson joining us also via Zoom. She is politics reporter at the Detroit Free Press. Welcome back, Clara.
2: Thanks so
0: much for having me. Yeah. And Jordan Hermony is here, politics reporter at M Live. Welcome, Jordan. It's always good to be here. Thank uh, you. So good to have you all back. So y'all, let's start at the state capitol, uh, where lawmakers in Lansing were busy on Wednesday. Um, I want to start with the billion, that is with a B, uh, dollar bipartisan spending plan that was approved. Um, Zach, just where is this money going, first off?
3: Well, most of it, $846 million, is going to something called the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve, which is a very governmenty way of saying money to attract and retain business to the state of Michigan. This is a relatively new mechanism uh, the state has created in the past year uh, to basically award large cash incentives to encourage business to invest in Michigan, most notably with the General Motors uh, electric vehicle electrification projects, uh, over 600 million for that. So there's a feeling you know, that that was successful and thus the state needs more money to try to keep that momentum going. The rest of it is um, a hodgepodge of legislative projects, Uh, As well as some old Federal CARES Act money, if anybody remembers that from the early days of COVID, that the state uh, had to spend by the end of this month or send it back to the feds.
0: Jordan, were you surprised that this happened on Wednesday, that suddenly there was this
4: billion dollar payout? So I had been talking with folks around Lansing in the lead up to that, and there had been whispers that there was going to be some type of supplemental, uh, which kind of ran counter to uh, what we had heard earlier uh, from the House Appropriations Chair, Thomas Albert. Uh, or I should say now, former House Appropriations We will Chair. get to that for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so we we had been a, a little bit aware of what had, uh, what was going to be happening. But as to the billions with a B, uh, or billion with a B, uh, we were not sure of that, of that exact dollar amount until uh, a little earlier in that day. Um, but yeah, you know, we still got about $6 billion left in state coffers now. And we can probably expect that we will return to that big, big pot of money post-midterms. Yeah. Clara, I want to get to
0: that point, right? So there was the state budget that was passed earlier uh, this summer. This was this historic amount of money, really because, as Zach said, so much federal dollars coming to the state. And there was this sense of, okay, there's $7 billion left. What's going to be done with it? And some kind of conversations about, was it going to happen before the election, afterwards? So $1 billion was spent, but there is still $6 billion left in this sort of pool of extra money.
2: Yeah, there is. I mean, I think it's interesting to see there's just a track record um, during the Whitmer administration of getting these big bipartisan legislative wins on um, budgets and supplementals. And uh, we saw another huge chunk of money, $850 million going to the state's economic development fund fund. Of course, there's still some money on the table, um, but we also saw some headway on uh, one of the key areas that had gotten some bipartisan support earlier during the budget negotiations, which was making college a little bit more affordable for folks. We saw a school aid budget passed or a school aid supplemental passed Wednesday night um, that creates a new Michigan achievement scholarship program to help uh, high school graduates afford college. It would provide up to 5,500 per year. Student um, per year, so I, th- I think that that's one big uh, thing that the that the Whitmer administration and state lawmakers can kind of cross off their list this session heading into the election.
0: Zach, were you surprised that this supplemental happened? You know, for for some weeks over the summer, it really looked like uh, lawmakers weren't going to come to some kind of agreement to spend this money because, in the real politics sense, there was some concern that it would, as Clara said, sort of be giving. Governor Gretchen Whitmer a win heading into the November election, right? Being able to say, look, I came together with Republican lawmakers and we are able to make this happen. Were you surprised this happened?
3: I mean, if you look in the big picture, like you just described, it it is a little surprising. You know, usually the uh, uh, legislative session days prior to immediately prior to an election are, you know, very mundane kinds of bills. Nothing, nothing big. Uh, like this, um, but, you know, if you're the Republicans in the legislature right now and you're looking at the governor's race and you're looking at Governor Whitmer as really the prohibitive favorite to win right now over Tudor Dixon, obviously it's not over, but the governor's in a commanding position, you know, you, you probably think, you know, if there's some things we can get done now that would help our members mm-hmm. when they're campaigning for reelection, you um, you know, let's do it, because if, you know, Governor Whitmer's gonna win, then we don't really have to worry about handing her a win, so to speak, and, you know, they're in a battle to keep, the Republicans are in a real battle to keep control of the legislature. So, yeah, big picture, it's a surprise, but when you look kind of at the micro situation, uh, you can see why uh, there was the momentum to get something done.
0: Not everyone was in favor of this supplemental getting done. Uh, Jordan, you gave us a little hint of what was happening, and that was, I think, really stunning uh, to those who watch the Capitol, the fact that the Appropriations Chair uh, in the State House, which is a really powerful committee, uh, he resigned right before this vote. Let's take a listen uh, to Tom Albert.
3: It is okay to hope for the best, but in this search situation, It is absolutely necessary. We plan for the worst.
0: Okay, so explain what he means here, Jordan, and what exactly happened.
4: Well, so earlier that morning, I I think that was actually his floor speech uh, later on uh, that evening, Wednesday evening. uh, But in the morning, uh, Albert told the House Appropriations Committee at the very end of it, uh, by the way, guys, and he said this much more artfully than I'm going to recap right now. But he said, by the way, guys, um, I am no longer your chair. I am going to be resigning as House Appropriations Committee chair because I vehemently disagree with this supplemental. His logic is, is that he believes that the state, but also the country, is headed towards an economic recession. And it's of his belief that the one time seven billion, now $6 billion uh, that is still sitting in the state's coffers should be saved to... Uh, Make sure that Michigan is not in a situation where we cannot be funding certain things or we have no money in in the state coffers, um, which by and large, talking to other people around Lansing uh, is not a very commonly held uh, position. Uh, We do have a lot of money topped off in our state's rainy day fund. Uh, We have a bunch of money obviously still sitting in the bank right now. Um, But Albert stuck to his guns. He has been very uh, vocally anti-supplemental leading up to this vote on Wednesday. Um, I believe it was either earlier this month or late last. He had even made a point to make a statement saying, do not expect any supplementals to come through me this year. I will not, you know, be buying. Um, And that was not held a belief held by his Senate counterpart, uh, Jim, Jim Thomas. He Thomas has been uh, a little more vocal about the fact of like, hey, let's be getting some stuff done. Let's be getting some of these dollars out out the door. Um, And so, yeah, it's pretty much seemed like you had. At least from an outsider's perspective, the administration on board for something to happen pre midterms. You had the Senate on board for something to happen pre midterms. You had uh, House leaders outside of Albert ready to have something done before midterms, and Albert seemed to be the squeaky wheel. So, from my understanding, uh, it was an amicable resignation. This was not something that um, House leadership was not expecting. Um, but I could see it on a couple faces in the committee meeting that morning where they were like, oh, oh, okay, we uh, have a new chair now. So I know that that was uh, some shock shared by me <laughs> sitting in the uh, the peanut gallery. But yeah, no, he, he resigned from that chair and he uh, was not the only Republican to be vocal about the fact that, you know, not in favor of these incentives. And there were even some uh, Democratic lawmakers who got up Wednesday night to even talk about the fact that they did not believe that this money was being as wisely spent as it could be. But by and large, I mean, this got through the door, um, waiting the governor's signature and... Uh, now now we have uh, an almost $850 million deposit into our state's uh, economics fund.
0: Zach, how surprised were you by this? And also help us understand for folks who aren't, you know, waiting on bated breath, every kind of little thing that happens in Lansing, the machinations of, you know, Appropriations Committee, why does this matter?
3: Well, it was very, yeah, I was very surprised. Uh, I can't recall in my time covering the Capitol, an Appropriations Chair, which you know, really is the second most powerful person in the Senate or the House to the lead, the Speaker or the Majority Leader, um, resigning and basically in protest. Uh, I mean, typically, you know, the Speaker and the Appropriations Chair really work hand in hand, um, and the Speaker traditionally will defer Appropriations matters to the Appropriations Chair with the understanding that, you know, there are certain parameters. Um, But we, you know, had heard for some time that the supplemental was being negotiated by Speaker Wentworth, not Representative Albert. That's, you know, highly unusual, even in an era where power is super centralized compared to, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, So yeah, I was very surprised, Um, but it really comes down to that the circumstances of the last two years with this avalanche of uh, surplus state revenues and federal revenues it's just, you know, Tom Albert was just the, it it was the wrong fit for him. Mm -hmm. You know, this is someone who uh, would generally prefer not to be spending, would probably be looking to find efficiency and savings in government. So the idea of spending billions in surplus revenue really was, you know, not in his wheelhouse. And I think he, you know, he made it clear he wasn't going to do anymore. And, you know, at some point he, you know, saw the writing on the wall that, um, you know, I don't remember the exact house vote. I, I think it might've been, you know, upward, somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 votes or so for that supplemental, you know, that he was vastly outnumbered and, uh, you know, he decided to step aside out of principle. And, and And I think he made the point of saying the speaker should have an appropriations chair that, you know, is in line, you know, in general agreement with them on key matters. And he's he's right, you know, you you, you can't have a situation where a speaker and the appropriations chair are, are, are bitterly at odds so that smooths that issue out um you know why does it matter i mean it, it just this is the you know i mentioned power is very centralized in the legislature these days when it comes to the budget it's really comes down to the speaker the senate majority leader and the appropriations chairs now um, and so this, that's one of the key cogs and so that's why it matters
0: Clara, I want to listen to a bit of Democratic Representative Joe Tate. He is here uh, speaking in favor of this uh, northward of $800 million going into the SOAR
3: fund. When you look back at last year, you look at the investments that that have been made. These have been significant investments to get across the finish line. So that
0: was Representative Joe Tate there. Um, Can you, Clara, in just a few seconds, explain to us... What is the SOAR fund, right? It's a sort of controversial idea, and some folks are for strategic spending by the state and some aren't.
2: Right. So it's basically the state's economic development fund to bring new investments to Michigan, and proponents of that kind of spending argue that it's necessary to make Michigan more economically competitive. But the general critique from opponents is that this is this is corporate welfare. It's taxpayer dollars to corporations who um, may have, you know created jobs in Michigan even without the incentives. And so there you know, there are folks who who don't like this kind of spending. Uh, and there have been some concerns raised recently about some of the fine print of these economic uh, development agreements. You know, one example, there is this huge announcement in June where you had Whitmer legislative leaders and Ford executives announcing taxpayer incentives um, to Ford, which had promised to create additional jobs in Michigan. And then just a couple of months later, Ford announcing that it's planned to cut um, thousands of salaried positions and it can still get that economic development money. Zach, this goes back, I mean, m- more than a d-
0: decades right here in Michigan, this idea of sort of government picking winners and losers and sort of deciding where money should go to stimulate the economy. And we're seeing this happen across the country. Right. So the argument being, well, Michigan has to stay competitive. And this has become a political issue with Tudor Dixon, the Republican candidate running for governor, who has sort of said she's not for this. And interestingly enough, it's been some strange bedfellows because there are even some liberal Democrats who weren't so sure that they wanted to spend this money either.
3: You know, it's interesting. Um, Tudor Dixon is very much in line with uh, two previous uh, Republican governors on this at the beginning of their terms, John Engler and Rick Snyder. Yep. Uh, both of them basically dismantled at the beginning of their turn their tenures in 1991 and 2011, respectively, uh, the state's economic development tools, uh, tax credits. Uh, those kinds of things. And basically on that same idea, like we're going to let the market work, let's set a lower tax environment overall, but not have government be in the business of awarding incentives and picking winners and losers. And both of them completely changed course by the end of their administrations. In in John Engler's case, very uh, infamously, General Motors moved uh, a very large plant that was based in Willow Run to Texas, Uh, And that was what led to the creation of um, the Michigan Jobs Commission, the Michigan Economic Growth Authority tax credits, and now the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Um, When Governor Snyder took office, he got rid of all of the state's business tax credits, almost all of them. Um, And But by the end of his tenure in office, the state had started to get its Uh, take a few steps back toward incentives. They Mm -hmm. passed a big package of tax incentives for a data center to get that to locate in the Grand Rapids area. And by the end of the Snyder era, uh, there was a a strong feeling in the business community that the state did not have the tools and measures necessary to attract big projects. Mm -hmm. That the idea of cutting taxes overall for everybody Setting a lower tax climate simply had not produced enough of an incentive to convince large entities to locate in Michigan. And so that led to um in during the Whitmer administration, the creation of this SOAR fund, the strategic outreach attraction reserve fund, um, which let you know let's just be clear, this is the handing over of, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money directly to yep. a corporation. Yep. Um, you know, that is offensive to people both at the far conservative and far liberal ends of the spectrum. Um, th- those who are, you know, came up with the idea to say this is better yeah. than those old Michigan Economic Growth Authority tax credits, which were, you know, awarded during the Engler and Granholm administrations.
0: OK, we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Oh, lawmakers also passed some election bills on Wednesday in Lansing, bipartisan election bills. One, as we talked about earlier in the hour with Ottawa County Clerk Justin Robeck, is the approval of two days of pre-processing of absentee ballots. Now, Clara, I want to be really clear. This, again, is not the actual counting of ballots ahead of time. This is just kind of these mechanics leading into it. Explain exactly what this means.
2: Sure. Um, so a lot of states do this, allow some sort of form of processing ballots. In some states, um, they'll put the ballot through the tabulator during this process. But in Michigan, that's not uh, on the table. So what the legislation would let election officials do is um, open the outer envelope, uh, that absentee ballot return envelope, and do, uh, take out the secrecy sleeve that's inside that absentee ballot return envelope, look at the stub number um, that's on that ballot, and just confirm that it matches what's on the outer envelope. So uh, ballots are not going to be going through the machine. Um, And I should note that this is not going to be taking place in every community across the state. It is only available in jurisdictions that are home to at least 10,000 residents. Jordan, how did we get
0: to a point where there was agreement between Republicans and Democrats on these bills?
4: Well, pre-processing has been something that's been talked about forever, honestly, it feels like, um, where, I mean, clerks – across the board have called for pre-processing measures to be implemented in Michigan, um, saying that this will help to reduce time spent otherwise that could be used to tabulate ballots. Um, It's one of the big reasons why we were seeing election results so late back in in 2020. Um, And we did have some pre-processing measures back then, but that did uh, end at the end of the 2020 year. Mm -hmm. So this is a way to bring it back in and bring it back in uh, in perpetuity. Now it does remain to be seen what's going to happen with. uh, We have a proposal two that's on the ballot that would also further alter uh, what clerks could do pre the election, but uh, at risk of not getting into the weeds too much there. Um, Yeah, no. Insofar as you know, when we learned about this, uh, Representative Van Bladelin, who chairs the House Elections and Ethics Committee, uh, at one point uh, Wednesday night came up to reporters, was like, "Hey, do you want to talk about absentee pre-processing?" And we all kind of cocked our heads side. We're like, I'm sorry, what? And uh, she's like, yeah, this is uh, this is going to be happening and uh, get ready for a vote on it. We're like, oh, OK, let us ask you a bunch of questions about this because we're learning this at the same time as everyone else. So uh, if any of you at home feel like you are blindsided by the legislature, just know you're not alone.
0: You're not alone <laughs> to all of the reporters as well who literally watch this day in and day out. Um, But not all clerks were necessarily happy with this. Um, let's take a listen uh, to Ingham County Clerk Barb Byram and her thoughts. The Republican legislature has failed to listen to election professionals certified, state certified and nationally certified in many cases, election professionals in what we need to more efficiently and securely conduct our elections. So, Zach, um, what Byram wants is more than two days, right? This idea that two days is great, but she would have liked to see more. And, and that she's not the only one who feels that way.
3: In general, it felt like the clerks kind of greeted this with a shrug. Mm. OK, sure. You know that the, the two days is is good and helpful. But, you know, they had the, the, some of the bills that accompany this. They were not happy about, you know, there's a bill gonna require them to do a, a chain of custody log on ballots when they empty drop boxes and bring them back. And as as one person who you know was sort of following this, she told me it's just all busy work. It's not gonna actually mean anything's more secure. It's just red tape and busy work. Mm-hmm. Um and so at, at one point during the week, you know, it was really seemed to be kind of teetering on the edge. People seemed hopeful, but it also you know, for you know, I think those that were on kind of the side of the governor, the secretary of state, the clerks are kind of like, why are we even talking about? You know, what we're giving people who are sort of on the fringe of election denialism these these bills, uh, and maybe the you know the proverbial juice isn't worth the squeeze as far as what they would get from pre-processing. So I don't think the clerks are, are celebrating this. I think they feel this will be helpful. Um, I think, as Jordan alluded to, they also are thinking if Proposal 2, the voting access proposal, passes, that will authorize early voting for the first time in Michigan. And that will likely mean far fewer absentee ballots cast and thus, you know, less of a need to start the pre-processing sooner. So we'll see. I don't think anybody's celebrating, but I think folks are hoping this does make election the election night process easier.
0: right? We've talked on the show about Proposal 2, the fact that it would enshrine in the state constitution nine days of early voting here in the state. That's, again, if that passes. Clara, you have done so much reporting and writing about absentee ballots this week and the process. I'm curious about how other states go about pre-processing and counting of absentee ballots. Is Michigan sort of alone in um, not necessarily allowing this to happen earlier so that we can Just as voters get results earlier after election day, because that's what really this is all about, right?
2: Right. So, uh, most states um, in the country do allow some form of pre processing. Um, In some states, um, you know, it can be as much as a couple of weeks to start pre-processing those ballots and some states even uh, run those ballots through the tabulator to expedite election night returns. But one thing that I I just think is really worth noting that's going to be a little bit different this year than in 2020 um, is that most counties in Michigan are no longer using modems to transmit election results. So I I think pre-processing was kind of billed two years ago as the thing that needed to be expanded to ensure that we'd have unofficial election night results on On election night. But the way that election results are going to be transmitted this fall, um, it's just a much more delayed process. You have election officials and workers having to drive um, thumb drives, like a flash drive, with the election results data to election offices, where they're then uploaded. And as we saw in the August primary, in some of the state's largest counties, um, Macomb and Wayne, we didn't have election results until the next morning.
0: Zach, how concerning is it then because of these, um, the possibility of delays in many cases simply because the county clerks or because clerks don't have the opportunity necessarily to start some of this work ahead of time could lead to delays? And in the environment in which we find ourselves where it seems like elections, every little thing can suddenly be misinformation and, you know, conspiracy theories. I mean, how much does this sort of hurt the process and only just going to lead to more questions about election integrity come November?
3: It's a difficult question to answer because the crowd that's out there that seems insistent that, you know, fraud, you know, massive fraud occurs, even though there's no evidence of it, you know, imagine, let's just for imagine for a moment that Michigan had a system where all the absentee ballots could be counted ahead of election day. And there was a magical button you could push at 8.05, or let's say 9.05 p.m. Mm-hmm. Eastern Standard Time um, on election night. And all of a sudden we had all the results. So, you know, at 9.10 p.m., we know 100% of the precinct's reporting. Does anyone really think in the environment we're in now that that same group wouldn't find some way of claiming (laughs) fraud shenanigans. Yeah. It it just feels like, you know, they, they have this belief. They're going to look for anything they can to support that belief. You know, we had elections for years and years and years in Michigan where we did not know the results until the next day. That's been the case for a long time. Um, It, you know, for whatever reason, you know, with uh, what happened in 2020, because of this situation where Republicans tended to vote it in person, and those were counted first. Democrats mostly voted absentee, and those were counted second, that a, a cache of President Trump supporters thought somehow funny business was played because what looked like a Trump lead was not actually a Trump lead, it was just the way the votes were counted. So I guess that's my long way of saying I'm not sure it really matters.
0: Yeah. No, thank you for that point, Zach. That's something absolutely that I think we'd we'd all need to keep a look at. Well, let's continue actually to talk a little bit about election denialism and the 2020 election um, with that, because Donald Trump is coming uh, back to Michigan. He is holding a rally here in the state on Saturday evening.
4: Jordan, where is he going to be and uh, why is he coming back? So he's going to be in Macomb on Saturday, and he's going to be rallying with the current top of the Republican ticket, Matt DiPerno, who's the Republican attorney general nominee, uh, Christina Caramo, who's the Republican secretary of state nominee, and Tudor Dixon, who is the gubernatorial Republican nominee. And it's being looked at as this being a almost like a flotation device where uh so DiPerno, and Dixon are not faring well in the polls. I don't know if you've noticed, but there has been an inundation of ads that are uh, for – Gretchen Whitmer that are for your local uh, office holders, but there has been very few to absolutely none, actually, for folks like Karamo, DiPerno, Dixon. Um, If Dixon is on television, it's usually because she's being referenced in a a Democrat-backed ad. Um, She has virtually no name ID, uh, very little money compared to the Whitmer camp. Uh, Polling is putting her at, I believe, something like 16 points behind Whitmer, which is a, a lead that we haven't seen since Snyder ran against Verge Bernaro in in 2010. And really, this is being looked at as a way to give Tudor Dixon some type of platform, some type of way to get her face and name out in front of voters, because she's not really being too well received, even by folks within her own base. We saw this earlier this year when uh, we were having the Republican nominating convention, and there were questions abound about, you know, Who who is Tudor Dixon? Why is she backed by by the DeVos family uh, folks who are in the grassroots part of the base saying, you know, do we do we like that she's backed by the DeVos family? So I think that this is just kind of hoping to be a a bit of a a bandaid over a gunshot wound. That is uh, a complete inability to get in front of voters here.
0: Clara, what do we expect to hear from Donald Trump or any of the statewide candidates that are going to be on stage with him on Saturday?
2: I mean, I think we'll probably hear something similar to what we heard back in April when uh, Trump was also in Macomb County to stump for these candidates, that these are the folks who are going to, in his words, prevent another corrupt election in 2024. Uh, he he did endorse Matt DiPerno and Christina Caramo I think over a year ago now. And so um, he's wanting to see uh, his candidates succeed this fall, I think sp- Specifically for uh, Caramo and DePerno, not only are the poll numbers not looking good, but very few voters know who they are. We had a poll uh, commissioned by the free press out in the field earlier this month that showed that three quarters of the voters surveyed don't don't know don't know them. Um, and when I was in Macomb in April to go to that Trump rally and cover it, um, which was also ostensibly to stump for these two candidates out of the Republican convention, folks I talked to there hadn't heard of them either.
4: Hmm.
0: And Zach, how much of this just simply, again, to Jordan's point earlier, and as Clara is talking about just name recognition, it's just simply the inability of these statewide Republican candidates to raise money to be able to actually get some name ID, whether it be because of ads or holding big rallies themselves.
3: It's a huge factor. I mean, we haven't had a situation in Kind of the modern era of campaign finance where a major party candidate for governor has so little money, no ability to put themselves on television. and uh, outside groups that would typically be spending on their behalf are really not doing so in a in a meaningful way. um it's it's a really a couldn't be a more lopsided situation in terms of what's going on in terms of advertising with the fire hose of ads coming from the Democratic side and Governor Whitmer. And then you know that's even maybe even more so in those AG and Secretary of State races where, Karamo uh, and DiPerno just have nothing you know in terms of money to pay for for television advertisements, the Democratic candidates do, um, and that you know this rally, I mean the really the, all that the Republican top of the ticket is left for the Republicans is you know earned media, uh, you know holding events that can get some news coverage. Obviously, this will get a lot of news coverage, and they've got to get the Republican base motivated. I mean, you know, a lot of Republican voters don't even know who these candidates are. And, you know, at least that would help close the gap. I had one, you know, prominent Republican tell me, you know, yes, Dixon's almost certainly going to lose, but it will likely be closer than, you know, these polls are showing once Republicans come home and realize this is their candidate and she's running against Gretchen Whitmer. Um, but And that's this is the kind of event they have to do to to at least get them to their found their base foundation.
0: Jordan, I'm curious about how much, and again, I don't think anybody can try or can read Donald Trump's mind. But how much of this do we actually think is like him coming to be helpful to these candidates versus just something about him and his reputation for who he's endorsed in this cycle? because we are seeing candidates across the country. Who he's endorsed, some of whom are not doing well because in some respects he picked kind of the most far right kind of Trump, you know, supporter election denialism. How much of this has to do with him just trying to get some of his Trump endorsed candidates to the finish line?
4: Well, I, I don't remember who told me this before, but the phrase Donald Trump doesn't like a loser has been stuck in my head since, you know, the the start of this campaign cycle. He doesn't like to lose. He doesn't like to be made a fool. And if he's putting his name on a product, he's going to try everything he can to make sure that that product is well received. In this case, for product, we're talking about these candidates. Um he waited until basically the 11th hour to even endorse Dixon in the first place. I mean, back when we had the just handful of candidates that were running uh, in the Republican gubernatorial uh, uh, primary. So he he waited before even putting his finger on the pulse there because we didn't even know who was going to come out top in the primary because there was such a hodgepodge of, of polling and ads mm-hmm. in, in earned media mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. So this is... From my own opinion, at least, this is definitely Donald Trump trying to make sure that the product that he is putting out for consumers is going to be well-received, whether that if that is just on Saturday night or if that is uh, larger and, you know, during the November midterm election itself, which obviously he is hoping, um, you know, remains to be seen. But, but here, at least, he's definitely doing an, an image rehab um, and – whether that's going to benefit Dixon, I mean, if you think about the fact that too the the lineup, Trump is the last person speaking. It's not even the individuals who are on the ballot. They're teeing him up. And yeah. usually when you're going to an event like this, the final speaker right. is the person that you're there to see. yeah, so, they're the opening acts on saturday night and and that does not bode well. I mean, you add on to the fact that, like Zach said, you have outside media companies who are spending a fifth of what, you know, Democrats are spending. It's just it it doesn't look good. Clara, just curious, uh, very quickly, in your
0: mind, normally a former president comes to town and you see the entire party show up. Uh, Is there an expectation that there's just some Republicans that might just sit sit this war and rally
2: out? Sure. I mean, folks I talked to back in April when Trump came, they a lot of them told me, yeah, I got my tickets, but I don't know if I'm going to go. I have I have a cousin's wedding to go to or I have, you know, plans with my wife. I got to wash my hair, so my I dog, my home. A lot of people uh, will, could make a game time decision about whether or not to show up, but it's not necessarily command performance for a lot of party activists across the state. And that's the Stateside It's Just Politics podcast for today.
0: I'm Zoe Clark. You can find the full Stateside show at michiganradio.org. Today's episode was produced by Ronia Cabinsog. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast producer is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music in this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much for listening.